Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about a mutiny that took place on a ship known as the HMS Hermione, a British warship that saw the bloodiest mutiny in British naval history take place. Now, we love a bit of naval history here on Half-Assed History, although it's not as not as common a feature as it once was back when we were doing what felt like, I don't know, a new pirate every every other week. But we do love a mutiny as well, and this is the third story and fourth episode dedicated to naval mutiny after episode 74, Mutiny on the Batavia, and episodes 46 and 47, Mutiny on the Bounty, get across them. But there's another thing we love on half Hour History, or a set of things, I should say, and that is, of course, a bit of blood and guts and horrible murder. And let me tell you, this story has plenty of all of those things and so much more. We're going to meet loathsome tyrants such as the cruel Captain Hugh Piggott, known for the brutal treatment of his crew. We'll meet bold heroes such as the courageous Captain Edward Hamilton, who risked life and limb for the sake of the ship. An ideal tale, really, for this Tin Pot History podcast, a story of bloody betrayal on the high seas, but it doesn't stop there. Because, look, I don't want to give the game away too much here, but... What happened after the mutiny on the Hermione is really no less interesting than the mutiny itself. Once the mutineers had control of the ship, the British were very keen to have it returned to them. Extremely determined they were, and the lengths that they went to to retrieve it are quite extraordinary. So it's not just the mutiny on the Hermione this week, it's also the cutting out of the Hermione as well. Two for the price of one, can't say fairer than that. But before we begin, of course, I want to thank alert listener Angus Stone for the suggestion. He's been listening for a few months now and he managed to find the perfect topic here, one that I haven't yet covered, which is not an easy thing to do given how uh, how long we've been going. But cheers, Angus, mate. Good on you. Thanks for the email. Thanks to everyone getting in touch. I obviously read every single email I get, even if I can't reply to them all. Always love it when people write in. Anyway, Let's get underway here. A real return to half-assed history's roots, I would say. Naval history, mutinies, blood and guts. Let's get stuck in, have a chat about the mutiny and the cutting out of the HMS Hermione. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. Going all the way back to 1780. This is when construction began on a new class of warship for the British Royal Navy, the Hermione class. And the Hermione itself was, you won't be surprised to learn, the lead ship of this class, the first of six that were built throughout the uh, throughout the 1780s. Now, the Hermione class was, wasn't really anything particularly special in terms of warships. Uh, officially, it was a fifth-rate ship out of the six ratings that the British used to categorise their warships. So it's in the second smallest category, and it's really not a particularly exciting ship. I mean, Hermione-class ships, they're around 40 metres long. They had 32 guns uh, and a crew and a staff of around 200 people or so. And just by way of comparison, a first-rate ship was massive, huge, much more powerful. Uh, the famous HMS Victory, which was Lord Nelson's flagship at the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, one of the most famous first-rate ships in, uh, in, in British naval history, Almost 70 metres long, had 104 guns, and, a, and it held a full complement of 850 people. So a fair bit bigger than the poor old Hermione. 
Uh, First-rate ships were the biggest and obviously the most powerful in the Royal Navy, but they did have their problems. Uh, They were ridiculously expensive to run, for instance. Uh, They were usually kept inactive in times of war because the huge costs involved in sailing them. Uh, And they were also generally just so cramped that they couldn't sail in the winter because there wasn't enough room to fit warm clothes and blankets for the hundreds and hundreds of people on board. So first-rate ships tended to only sail in the warmer months. And um, I I found this very amusing. I think this is the funniest thing about first-rate ships. They're so big, right, and so heavy that the lowest gun deck on these ships was usually only a couple of metres above the waterline which meant that these gun ports could only be opened on calm waters or waves would just swamp through the through the gun the, through the gun ports and essentially flood the ship from the lower deck so anyway None of these problems applied to the Hermione. It's only a fifth-rate ship, quite small in the grand scheme of things, just under 40 metres, uh, about, as, about as big, about as long as a domestic aeroplane, uh, for, for, you know, to give you a sense of how, how large it is. The, the Hermione was completed in 1782. Uh, for the next 10 years, it was commissioned for service under various captains of the British Royal Navy. And we don't need to spend too long chatting about this period of the ship's history because, um, I mean, really the simple reason is not very much seemed to happen to the Hermione in her early years. I really did try. I tried to find an amusing amusing anecdote or, or something to share from the first decade of the Hermione's service. But yeah, no, there's just just not a lot going on there. Hey, she was repaired at one point. She was refitted in the early 1790s to keep her up to scratch after years at sea. But um, it isn't until 1794 that anything even a little bit interesting happened. In 1794, with the French Revolutionary Wars getting into full swing, the Hermione took part in the successful British attack on the then-French-held city of Port-au-Prince in modern-day Haiti. Uh, The British seized Port-au-Prince. They took a bunch of rich merchant vessels as prizes that were laying about in its harbour. And, um, yeah, look, I mean, you know how I said I was looking for something that was even a little bit interesting? This... This is it. it. It is just that. It is something that is only a little bit interesting. So, no, look, let's skip ahead here. Let's skip ahead to 1797 to the mutiny and meet the villain of our story, a bloke by the name of Captain Hugh Pickett. Now, Pickett was born in 1769. He's not even 30 years old. He's already been a captain for many years. And can I tell you this? Absolute Nepo baby. He really was. His dad, who also was named Hugh Pickett, had been an admiral. He had sailed on his dad's ships. Uh, He was commissioned as a lieutenant at 21 years old, given command of a ship before he turned 25. And uh, he was, let me tell you, a real nasty pasty, this bloke. He had a terrible reputation as, as being cruel and barbaric, as an absolutely brutal captain. For instance, while he was captain of a ship known as the HMS Success, he managed to order around 80 floggings of his crew members, more or less half his crew. One bloke in particular on the HMS Success was flogged seven times. Not a great result for him. And even worse, some of the other blokes, some of the other people who were flogged, they were so badly flogged, two of them died from their injuries. Absolutely shocking thing to have happened. I mean, flogging was definitely part of the, you know, the process of discipline on on warships in, you know, during this, during this period of British history. But 80 floggings in nine months and two deaths. I mean, that is that is atrocious. This bloke was a terrible leader by all accounts, absolutely unfit for the role of captain, but he was well-connected. Thanks to his dad, he had friends in high places. So, I mean, who cares about stupid stuff like talent and ability and merit? This bloke made it because, as I say, he was, he had, he was, he was very well-connected. Anyway, 
He's given command of the Hermione in 1797, and uh, as he takes command of the ship, he brings with him brings with him some of his old crew from his former ship, and immediately rubbed the uh, rubbed the new members of his crew the wrong way by heavily favouring his old crew members, and. It, did, it didn't get much better for him either. Piggott didn't do himself any favours. He started cut, cutting about in the Hermione, meeting out brutal punishments for anyone who stepped out of line, and often as well for those who didn't. Um, he mistreated other officers as well, which was something that was very much frowned, frowned upon. Um, and, and he mistreated officers that sometimes weren't even aboard his ship. After the uh, successful battle of, uh, of Jean Rebel alongside other British ships, still in modern-day Haiti here, Pickett sent back a report to the Admiralty that didn't mention the help that he'd received from the other ships and their captains. He made it sound like the victory was all thanks to him. So he's really, really not doing himself any favours in terms of reputation. Um, He also threw one of his own officers under the bus when the Hermione was almost wrecked. Uh, One of the officers managed to avert disaster, prevent the Hermione from running aground. And Pickett repaid this by blaming the officer for the near miss and ordering an inquiry into his actions. So, I mean, I'm sure you'll agree with me. Very ordinary bloke by the sounds of things. Not a fan of him at all. And it wasn't long before his crew they'd had an absolute gutful of Piggott and, and his behaviour. And this is what brings us to the mutiny. Piggott was given command of the Hermione in February 1797. And by the time we get to September, just six or seven months later, things have reached boiling point. Piggott is still going about, he's flogging people left, right and centre, he's being an absolute prick about things, everyone's having a terrible time, morale has never been lower. Uh, but then, two things happen in quick succession to set the crew off and make them rise up against Piggott, relieving him not just of his command of the ship, but also ultimately his life. Check this out. On the 14th of September, 1797, Piggott, he's going about prowling up and down the ship, looking for something or someone to, to go off at, when he spots a gasket, right, one of the ropes that's uh, used to hold a sail in place. He spots a gasket that has been incorrectly fastened. And he goes, oh, here we go. Here we go. Someone is going to cop it sweet for this. Just the thing I need to liven up my day, he says. Here we go. So he starts looking around for the bloke responsible for this poorly tied gasket. And allow me to introduce to you now one of the junior officers aboard the ship, midshipman David Casey. Now, Casey, young Irishman, just 19 years of age and relatively popular amongst the crew, he wasn't personally responsible for tying the gaskets. He wasn't the bloke climbing up into the rigging and tying them himself. But as a junior officer, he was responsible for the crew who would have tied them. They were under his direct supervision. And I have to say... Casey did the right thing. When when Pickett came to him with news of this mistake, this gasket that hadn't been fastened, Casey took full responsibility. He didn't try to palm it off onto the bloke who had actually mistied it. He said, yes, look, I accept it. You know, as a good leader should, right? When one of his men made, made this mistake under his watch... He took responsibility for it and he offered the uh, offered an apology to the captain. But this wasn't good enough for Piggott, was it? Oh, no. No, absolutely not. He was going to have a great big carry-on about it, turn into a great big song and dance here, and he demanded that Casey get on his knees and beg for forgiveness. Now, Casey, I mean, he's young, right? He's still he's a young bloke, but he's still an officer and he's still a gentleman, and he's not about to be humiliated like this. And so he refuses. He says, no, I'm not going to be degraded like this. I'm not going to be put to shame. I'm not going to, I've offered you the apology. I'm not going to get down onto my knees. And Piggott, as you can imagine, 
absolutely enraged by this resistance. He can't believe this young upstart Irishman is standing up to him, the captain of this ship, and he orders Casey to be, can you guess, flogged. Now, this is particularly notable here because Casey is an officer and flogging is not a punishment that is usually meted out on officers. And given the fact that Casey was quite popular with the rest of the crew, this order went down like a fart in an elevator. Casey being a popular, I mean, no wonder he was a popular bloke. He's doing things like taking responsibility for his men's mistakes, defending them from the captain. He's obviously a good officer and he had the respect of the crew. And they're none too happy to see Casey receive 12 of the best from the boatswain's mate. And they are even less happy when, in addition to the flogging, Casey is also disrated, essentially a demotion. And when this happens to a young midshipman, it effectively ruined any potential career you would have as an officer. Being being disrated as a young midshipman, that was it for your naval career. So terrible treatment of Casey. And some of the crew already have had enough. They're starting to think very mutinous thoughts. They're starting to chat amongst themselves about plotting a mutiny. But what finally caused everything to boil over once and for all uh, took place just a few short days later, less than a week later, on the 20th of September. Pickett loved to flog his crew. We know this. I mean, it should be obvious to to you by now. He had a real thing for it. And he didn't reserve floggings for special occasions. He actually made them an extremely frequent, almost like like routine of being a member of his crew, which again, it was highly unusual. Floggings were certainly a part of life at sea for British sailors at this point in history, but nowhere near as common as Pickett would have you believe. And in particular, Piggott made it a habit to flog whichever crew members were last down from working aloft. That is, working up on the masts, in the rigging, working with the sails, that sort of thing. The topmen, right? As they were known. On the 20th of September, after ordering the sails to be reefed or reduced, taken in a bit, um, he also ordered that the last topman down from the sails be flogged in, in order to try to get them to work a bit faster, I guess. Monstrously unfair, not just for the fact that he's, you know, going to flog a bloke, but also because the topmen working up on the sails, right, they're, they're spread out across the yard arm, the, um, the horizontal bit that the sails hang down from, right? And the blokes who are spaced out on the outer edges of the yard arm would naturally be the last ones down because they were the furthest away from the masts to, to, to climb back down onto the deck. So it was almost guaranteed to be these blokes on the outer end, outer end of the yardarm that would receive the flogging. So monstrously unfair, as I say, because again, it's it, totally arbitrary as to who has to work on the uh, on the outer edge of the yardarm. Usually the youngest person would be doing this. So he's taking advantage of these young, inexperienced sailors. And that's what makes the next thing even more tragic, because as these young blokes who are working away as, as fast as they can on the outer edges of the yard, I mean, as they're hurrying to get back down to the deck so that so they don't get flogged, right? Three of them, inexperienced young sailors, they fell off. They fell from the yardarm down onto the deck and they died as a result of this fall. Now, was Piggott remorseful at causing these needless deaths? Was he filled with regret for ending the lives of three young sailors through nothing more than fear of violence? Bloody pig's ass he was, mate. Of course not, absolutely not. Do you know what he did instead? He ordered the other crew members to pick up the bodies and, I quote, throw the lubbers overboard. And it was here that Piggott went too far because calling a sailor a lubber was a grievous insult, enormously insulting to any seaman, one of the worst things 
you could call a sailor. And when other crew members protested and complained at his conduct, Piggott ordered them to be flogged. There was going to be a flogging, like it or not. I mean, that much you can be sure of, right? And then the next morning, Piggott had more of the crew flogged just for good measure. And this was too much. The humiliation and disrating of a well-liked officer, the needless deaths of the crew, the cruel and arbitrary punishment of other crew members, things had finally come to breaking point. And that night, on the 21st of September, mutiny finally broke out. On the 21st, a group of mutinous crew members broke into the ship's supplies and they nicked a bunch of rum and they went up to the forecastle and got heartily pissed in both the very drunk sense and the very angry sense. They were pissed no matter which side of the Atlantic you're on. They're riled up, they're ready for a scrap, and they have had enough of this bloke. The core group of mutineers, a dozen or a dozen and a half or so, they decide enough is enough. And as I say, pissed as chooks, they seize weapons, cutlasses and knives and whatever else they can get their hands on, and they descend on the captain's cabin to take matters into their own hands. The cabin is guarded by a single marine. He doesn't last very long as 18 or so armed mutineers attack and dispatch him, break down the door to the captain's cabin and run into where Piggott is sleeping. Now, he's roused from his sleep by this hullabaloo, of course. He wakes up to find these mutineers rushing forward to attack him, jumps up out of bed, grabs a dagger to try to defend himself, but it is far too late for him. The chickens have come home to roost. Piggott is set upon by the pissed-up mutineers. They hack and slash away at him until he is a bleeding mess on the floor. He's not dead, not yet anyway, but the mutineers, they have passed the point of no return and they now turn their attention from the captain to the other officers who by now have also been roused from their sleep, alerted to the fact that there is a, a mutiny going on at this very moment along with much of the crew. And look... Not to put too fine a point on it, Pickett's brutality and barbarism was repaid in full by the mutineers whose ranks only swelled as more and more crew came up on deck and joined them. The mutineers, full of piss and vinegar, savagely attacked all the other officers that they deemed to be complicit in Pickett's reign as captain, and no fewer than eight of them were killed and thrown overboard. The lieutenants, the marine commander, the surgeon, the purser, some of the midshipmen, all of them killed and chucked over the side of the ship. I, I, I should say here as well, in addition to Captain Piggott, some of them weren't actually dead when they were thrown overboard, just terribly wounded. Uh, Piggott, like the rest of them, was thrown over the side of the ship while still alive, although, you know, wounded as he was, you can't imagine it would have been too long before he was claimed by Davy Jones's locker. But not all of the officers were killed in this bloodbath. Uh, for instance, the master was spared, the master of the ship. He was the only person who could actually navigate the ship, uh, so he was spared, as well as the carpenter and the gunner, who were considered too useful uh, to be hacked to pieces and thrown overboard. And other officers weren't killed because they actually joined in on the mutiny. They saw which side of the bread was buttered. Um, and while midshipman Casey never officially sided with the mutineers, he too was spared, and I can't imagine that he would have been uh, too quick to defend his captain from these mutineers after the treatment that he received. In any case, after all this violence, the mutineers had seized control of the ship, uh, and that was that. And with the mutiny having been successfully undertaken, what was next? What were the mutineers now to do 
as I say, they have gone past the point of no return. They can't just sail back to Britain and say, oh, well, yeah, look, he was a real prick, wasn't he? I mean, sometimes the Admiralty could be not forgiving necessarily, but at least a little understanding of, uh, of mutineers. There had been some, there'd been some high, uh, high-profile mutinies recently, the Spithead and the Nor mutinies. Many of these mutineers actually escaped punishment altogether after negotiations with the Admiralty, and this was very lenient, very unusual. But here on the Hermione, I mean, the violence, the bloodshed, the trail of floating officer corpses meant that there would be no forgiveness or understanding, and the mutineers knew that all too well. So what were they to do? They had the master ready to go to navigate them to where they, you know, wherever they wanted to point the ship, but where could they point the ship? They, these guys are, are mutineers. They are not going to be welcomed back to Britain with open arms, and there are only a limited number of places left for them to go. I, I should point out, we are 80 years after the golden age of piracy. It is too late to run up the black flag and start handing around the eye patches, hooks and peg legs. That, that was, that, that was a, that's a bygone era. They can't get back to Britain. They can't get back to British waters. They'll all be executed, no question. And so the mutineers decided, well, look, in for a penny, in for a pound. They've already committed some mutiny, so why not add to that some light treason? The mutineers ordered the the master, the the spared navigator, to sail them to the Spanish-held port of La Guayara, right, which is in what is today Venezuela, with the plan to hand over the ship to the Spaniards and be done with it. This was, I mean, I say light treason. It was not light treason. Spain was at war with Britain at this time, and so this really is, this is not light treason, this is high treason. But what else were they going to do? The mutinies couldn't go home. Their best shot, shot was just to just abandon the ship to the Spanish and then disappear into probably the Americas somewhere, maybe maybe to the brand spanking new United States of America, uh, where sailors were in very, very high demand, and also they you know had a language in common, as English was spoken there as well. And so... The, uh, the decision was made. The, the mutineers would sail to La Guayara. The navigator set a course and the Hermione sailed off towards what is today Venezuela, where some very surprised Spanish officials received the mutineers after their arrival and heard their offer to surrender the ship to them. Basically, no questions asked. The mutineers handed over the ship. They were paid for their trouble. The surviving marines aboard the ship were taken as prisoners of war. And while the the other crew, they were offered jobs with the Spanish colonial army uh, or offered to be uh, offered employment refitting and repairing the Hermione or, as I should call it now, the Santa Cecilia, as the Spanish renamed it after taking control of it. Some of the mutineers actually remained behind and ended up not just working on the ship uh, to repair and refit it, but also as its crew once it took to sea again. But others drifted off to various parts of the world. However, the navigator, right, the master, and uh, some of the other officers and the crew who had never aligned themselves with the mutineers, having instead just been, you know, more or less taken along for the ride, um, these blokes returned to Britain as quick as they could and brought with them the story of, of the mutiny in all its detail. Now, This wasn't new to the Admiralty. They'd already heard something about this mutiny after capturing some Spaniards at sea and hearing about this ship having been handed off to the Spanish. And the Admiralty was already making efforts to try to recover the ship. Admiral Sir Hyde Parker, which is just the most ridiculous name I've ever heard. I mean, did his parents name him after the park or was the park named after him? I mean, who can say? But um, uh, Admiral Parker, he took strong and decisive action 
in order to reclaim the ship. He boldly set out to bring the surrendered Hermione back home to Britain by any means necessary. And in order to do this, he wrote a letter to the Spanish asking them to please return it, if that's okay, thanks very much. But no, it was not okay. The Spaniards instead just laughed and moved the Santa Cecilia to Puerto Cabello, a large and very well-defended harbour, still in modern-day Venezuela. I will say, however... That even if he did a bad job uh, in initially in trying to get the Hermione back, he uh, Parker did a much better job of bringing many of the mutineers to justice. After posting large rewards for their capture and and mobilising informers and agents across the Atlantic, the Admiralty captured thirty three of the mutineers, and at least twenty four of them were executed for their role in the mutiny. The spared navigator and the other survivors from the mutiny, uh, they were key witnesses at the trials that were held for these mutineers. And this, incidentally, is why we have such a detailed understanding of what happened aboard the Hermione in September 1797 with this mutiny. Um, and a bunch of them, as, as I say, they were found guilty. They were executed. Um, I don't know how they were executed. In My, my guess is that they were, they were hanged. That's generally how non-officers were were executed for mutiny, uh, sometimes from the yardarm of the very ship they served on, although that wasn't an option here with the Hermione or the Santa Cecilia now. Um, mutinous officers would have faced a firing squad. And and interesting, and what you may have realised I'm doing here is deflecting from the fact that I couldn't find out all that much about how the mutineers were recaptured and tried. Uh, that would have been a very interesting story, I imagine, if I could have actually found any details on it, which I couldn't. So instead, I'm distracting you with other facts here, um, such as the uh, interesting but only slightly related fact that mutiny still carried the death penalty in Britain until 1998, if you'll believe it. Until 1998, you could be hanged in Britain for being part of or even failing to report a mutiny. Imagine that. Mutiny and treason still would have got you executed back then, just 25 years ago. Anyway, let's refocus our attention now back on the ship, on the Santa Cecilia, nay Hermione, uh, and talk about what the British were doing to get the ship back as the months now turned into years. Some within the Admiralty considered it a point of honour to reclaim the ship. They weren't about to let it go. And after reports emerged of the ship now being located in, in Puerto Cabello, a plan began to form. Firstly, a negotiator was sent to speak with the Spanish and see if there could be a, a, a peaceful, a, a diplomatic solution struck between the two nations. But this proved fruitless. The Spanish weren't about to give a warship back to people with whom they were, you know, at war. And so instead, old mate Admiral Hyde Parker deployed another ship, the HMS Surprise, to hang about Puerto Cabello and intercept and seize the Santa Cecilia if it put out to sea. Now, the Surprise was very well named because it didn't do quite what you might have expected to here. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about exactly what happened in a moment, but I want you now to meet the captain of the HMS Surprise, a fellow named Edward Hamilton. Here he is now, a fine figure of a man. Look at him go. Been at sea since he was seven, now a strapping 27-year-old in command of his own ship. Hamilton was sent, as I say, to keep an eye out uh, for the Santa Cecilia from the HMS Surprise and recapture it if it put out into open water. But Hamilton, he is too filled with vim and vigour for such a passive plan. No, no. He was one of those who considered the honour of the Admiralty to have been tarnished by the loss of the Hermione, and he wasn't just going to wait around for a chance to retake it. He lived up to the name of the ship he commanded by beginning to plan out what's known as a cutting out 
operation. He wanted to catch the Spanish with their pants down, give them a bit of a surprise. He planned to board the stolen ship and take it back by force, come what may. None of this diplomacy rubbish, no flapping the old gabber and asking nicely. Hamilton is a man of action. Small issue though, Hamilton, mate. There is a reason that the Spanish moved their new ship to Puerto Cabello. Not only are there other Spanish warships in the harbour, not only is the harbour filled to the brim with soldiers and sailors, the harbour itself is also covered by 200 cannons bristling from a Spanish fort and two shore batteries overlooking the harbour itself. So this is going to be a risky, bloody operation. The cutting out or the stealing of a ship out from under the noses of the Spaniards, sneaking it out past, once again, I'll remind you, 200 guns. But Hamilton, he considers himself to be the man for the job. And so he starts to carefully plan out this attack to retake the Santa Cecilia, or as I've no doubt he was calling it, the Hermione. Now, this plan that he came up with, it was meticulous in its detail. Every person involved was given a a specific job, a specific place to be and a specific thing to do. And if the whole thing was going to work, then it had to be like clockwork, had to run as smooth as butter. Hamilton made all the necessary preparations. He briefed his men on all the details, how things are going to go, how things are going to go, where to stand, what to do, where to be. And with everything in readiness, on the night of the 24th and the 25th of October, the cutting out of the Hermione begins. Hamilton had about 100 men or so under his command dressed, I mean, they're all sailors and marines, right? And he dressed them from head to foot in dark colour. Not him himself, obviously. He, he had them probably dress themselves, I would imagine. I didn't get the details on this, but that is my guess. He had them dress themselves from head to foot in dark colours. And he split them up into six small boats with no lights on them. These six boats quietly crept into the harbour under the cover of darkness. Three on the left side of the ship and three on the right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Three on the port side and three on the starboard side of the Santa Cecilia, I should say. Don't want all the the nautical nerds in my inbox about that one. Anyway, all of these people on the, aboard these boats, they've got, this, they've got their instructions. The plan was for everything to be done stealthily with a minimum of fuss and attention. And this didn't quite pan out, however. I mean, look, the Spanish, as I said, they were taken by surprise. They weren't ready for this attack, as bold and daring as it was. But Hamilton didn't quite catch them with their pants down. Before Hamilton and his men arrived at the ship, the Spanish spotted them, raised the alarm. But even so, as the Spanish descended into port, took to the water in boats of their own to intercept the British as they approached the Santa Cecilia, there still weren't that many of them. And by the time that the British arrived at the Santa Cecilia, the deck is still largely empty. There are only a handful of Spanish soldiers aboard the ship ready to defend it. However, there are still plenty of other soldiers in the area for the Spanish who grabbed their muskets. There were hundreds of them lining the harbour, shooting at these uh, these British boats as they approached the stolen ship. Uh, However... They were shooting like stormtroopers and they hit more of the Spanish in their boats out on the water than they did the British. So it's an absolute mess for the Spaniards already, scrambling to try to defend the ship, doing an absolute, making an absolute dog's breakfast of the whole thing. And it only got worse from there. 
Hamilton and his men reached the Santa Cecilia and a boarding party scaled its sides to attack and you won't be surprised to learn that brave Hamilton himself was the first over the side to bear his steel against the Spanish. And here is where the bravery and the heroism of Hamilton really comes to the fore. I generally have a lot of respect for leaders who are happy to carry out the orders that they themselves give. I think that the mark of a good leader is never ordering someone to do something that they wouldn't do themselves. And Hamilton embodied this because he was right there in the thick of things, fighting shoulder to shoulder with his men. In fact, as the British boarding party was driven back by the, by the, by the Spanish as they scrambled to defend the ship, Hamilton stood his ground. He was the last British man left aboard the ship as part of this first boarding party before ultimately being knocked to the ground by a terrific blow to the head from the butt of a musket. However, the first boarding party had done its job. They had tied up the, the attention of the Spanish. This wasn't the main attack. This wasn't the, this wasn't the main force of boarders. Instead, the main force had climbed up on the other side of the ship and critically, this force included the complement of Marines. These Marines rushed the deck. They rescued Hamilton, who had proven himself a hero by being the first aboard the ship and the last to try to get off it. And the Marines cut the confused Spanish to pieces. The Spanish ended up pinned between two boarding parties, this, this, uh, you know, this complement of Marines and, and the other blokes who had been, who had been the first aboard uh, before they arrived, one on each side. And so the Spanish had to retreat. They, they fled below deck. But this was all part of the plan. Because with the deck cleared for the British, with the deck seized, while the Marines and the other sailors pursued the Spanish below, chucking grenades down into the lower decks before rushing down themselves, those who Hamilton had, Hamilton had instructed to cut the mooring ropes, to ready the sails, and cut the anchor cables, they got to work. And before you know it, the Santa Cecilia was loosed from her moorings, the sails were lowered, and the ship began to move out of the harbour, still with a large contingent of Spanish troops and sailors who had fled below deck. Some of them were smart enough to realise, oh geez, we, we got to get out of here. They jumped overboard and tried to swim back ashore. But many of them were trapped on the ship, and for them, it only got worse as the ship headed out towards open water. Because now, the greatest test of all stood between the Santa Cecilia and the open sea. The shore batteries and the 200 guns which were swiftly being readied and brought to bear on the escaping ship. Now it's too late for any of the Spaniards to try to jump overboard and swim back because now as the cannons rang out, filling the night air with booming thunder and the smell of smoke, the Santa Cecilia came under a hail of cannon fire. However, precious few of these cannonballs actually met their mark. Remember, this is the late 18th century. There are no floodlights. There's no, there are no night vision goggles. There's no great way for those on the cannons in the batteries to actually, you know, aim. So while they did manage to connect with the ship a few times as it, as it fled... Only very superficial damage was done to the Santa Cecilia. Hamilton had ordered that no lights be lit aboard the ship as it sailed away to prevent the, the gun batteries from having a target. And so, in the small hours of the 25th of October 1799, the Santa Cecilia, or the, the Hermione, I guess, as it is now once again, sailed away from Puerto Cabello into open water after this very successful cutting out operation by Hamilton 
and his men. And what's more, to add insult to injury for the Spanish, there were still hundreds of Spanish soldiers and sailors aboard it as it sailed off. The Spanish captain was taken prisoner and the rest of the Spaniards quickly surrendered in the wake of this. Although, as I mentioned, some of them had been clever enough to jump overboard when they realised that the ship wasn't going to be stopped. But most of them were trapped the moment they went below decks and the heavily armed and well-prepared British Marines took advantage of the surprise and, and, and the panic of the Spanish. If you'll believe it, the British didn't lose a single man in this engagement, while the Spanish lost over a hundred, on top of the 230-something that were taken prisoner. Now, these prisoners were, they were dropped off the next day rather than dragged off to rot away in prison. Very sporting of the British there, you would think. But the British themselves didn't suffer a single death in the cutting out of the Hermione. Twelve of them were injured, a few of them quite badly, including Captain Hamilton himself. But It was an overwhelming success for the British, this operation. Poor old Captain Hamilton, though. He had had suffered a a bonk on his melon, quite a bad one too. And he'd also been skewered by a pike, slashed by a sabre, and he'd been hit by grape shot. He's not in good nick, but good on him once again for being the first on board in the attack and the last to retreat. I mean, that is true leadership. And I'm happy to say that, that, that not only did he make a more or less full recovery, he was also rewarded richly for his bravery. Hamilton returned at the HMS Surprise, he split his crew between it and the Santa Cecilia, and he set a course back to Britain with his spoils. And he was absolutely showered in praise and adulation after returning to Britain, a hero with his courageously seized prize. He was knighted, later on he became a baronet, he received a large monetary reward as, as prize money, and he was awarded the freedom of the City of London exactly one year to the day after his exploits in the cutting out of the Hermione. And in case you thought it wasn't possible to like this bloke even more, when he was offered a pension of £300 a year, £300 a year, that is tens of thousands of dollars in today's terms, right? When he was offered this pension, he turned it down. He was rich enough, he said, with his prize money. And also, interestingly, he didn't want the Admiralty using the pension as an excuse to not give him any more work. Now, look, I've made it clear, Hamilton, something of a hero during this whole whole operation. I do have to mention another aspect to this bloke's life and his career. There is an unfortunate side of the story. As he got older, as his career continued to flourish. Unfortunately, he did change a little bit. He developed a bit of a nasty streak as the years went on. I don't know if his newfound ruthlessness was because uh, he was so used to, you know, praise and approbation everywhere he went, or some have suggested that the uh, the bonk on his head was that bad that it may have actually caused his some, you know, a, a shift in his personality. I don't know. In any case, he certainly wasn't such a nice bloke in later years, but you know, despite being court-martialed, despite being dismissed from operational duty because of mistreatment of some of the officers underneath him, he did continue to rise through the ranks uh, administratively, and he ended up as an admiral in 1846, a very decorated one at that. As for the Santa Cecilia, well, once it was back in British hands, once the admiralty had had, had its honour restored, the British decide to rename the ship once again. It didn't go by Hermione anymore, no, no in a very neat reflection of its recapture from the Spanish and as a warning to mutinous sailors throughout the Royal Navy, in 1800, the ship was renamed the HMS Retribution. And it served for five more years until 1805, when it was finally 
broken up after over two decades at sea. And that, my friends, is the story of the HMS Hermione, the Santa Cecilia, the HMS Retribution, the ship that saw the bloodiest mutiny and one of the most daring cutting out operations in British naval history. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the mutiny on the Hermione. And what fun it's been to go back to a bit of naval history once again. We'll have to do more of it. I don't know what it is about history taking place on the sea. I don't know what it is about the maritime industry that makes history so much more fun, but it really is. And I hope you enjoyed this show half as much as I enjoyed writing it for you. I want to thank all the people supporting the show, of course, all the Patreon members, uh, the people who are supporting the show financially. Thank you so much to everyone. Patreon.com slash half history if you want to join their exalted ranks. You too can gain access to secret behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, uh, uncut episodes, early access as well. Uh, some of the most recent episodes have been released up to three weeks ahead of time. So if you want to get your claws into this sort of stuff, a little earlier than The Great Unwashed, you certainly can. But if you are a member of The Great Unwashed, you're certainly welcome here as well. And it's good to have you supporting the show just by listening, getting those numbers up, and of course, spreading the show. We are getting so many new listeners. And I want to welcome each and every one of you in to the Half-Assed History community. And I do hope you'll stick around for more and more silly nonsense once, you, once you've worked your way through the nearly 250 episodes of, uh, of Back Catalog here. Anyway, um... Uh, special thanks, of course, go to Angus Stone this week for sending in this as a topic suggestion. If you'd like to uh, do the same thing as Angus, halfhousehistory.net is the website. You can go there and find the contact form. That's the best way to get in, in touch with the show, touch with me. I read every single one of the emails. I don't reply to them all. I just can't. There are too many, but I appreciate everyone who gets in touch. Thank you so much, especially the people sending in feedback. Uh, with all these new ears listening to the show, it's good to know how the show can be improved. So if you've got an idea for uh, something that needs to change, let me know and I'll uh, I'll, I'll give it some thought. But that's going to do it for this week. And I'll see you back here, of course, next week for more nonsense. And I'm looking forward to your company very much. Until then, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. We talked, of course, a lot about naval history today. Uh, talked a lot about life at sea. Uh, we talked about scurvy in the past, actually. Episode uh, episode 62, James Lind and the cure for scurvy. Get across that one. And this is related to all things naval here. This one comes to us from Shahusta on Reddit who asks, Is it just the naval oranges that prevent scurvy? 